Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Chapter 17 of Joel, A Boy of Galilee by Annie Fellows Johnston Recording by Esterman Simonide It was so much later than he had intended when Joel awoke next morning that without stopping for anything to eat, he hurried out of the city and took the road by which the master had made such a triumphal entry a few days before. Faded branches of palms still lay scattered by the wayside, thickly covered with dust. All unconscious of what had happened the night before, and what was even at that very moment taking place, Joel trudged on to Bethany at a rapid pace, light-hearted and happy. For six days he had been among enthusiastic Galileans, who firmly believed that before the end of Passover week they should see the overthrow of Rome, and all nations lying at the feet of a Jewish king. How long they had dreamed of this hour! He turned to look back at the city. The white and gold of the temple tales with his eyes as it threw back the rays of the morning sun. He thought of himself as he had stood that day on the roof of the carpenter's house, stretching out longing arms to this holy place, and calling down curses on the head of his enemy, Rahum. Could it be the same boy? It seemed to him now that the poor crippled body, that bitter hatred, that burning thirst for revenge, must have belonged to someone else. He felt so swell, so strong, so full of love to God and all mankind. A little broken-winged sparrow fluttered feebly under a hedgerow. He stopped to gather a handful of ripe berries for it, and even retraced his steps to his tiny spring he had not his further back to bring it water in the hollow of a smooth stone. He did not find Rehum at the place where Buzz had told him to inquire. His father had taken him to his home, somewhere in Samaria. Joel turned back, tired and disappointed. He was glad to lie down when he reached Bethany again, and rest a while. A peculiar darkness began to settle down over the earth. Joel was perplexed and frightened. He knew it could not be eclipsed, for it was the time of the full moon. Finally, he started back to Jerusalem, although it was like traveling in the night, for the darkness had deepened and deepened for nearly three hours, and the mysterious gloom made him long to be with his friends. His first thought was to find the master, and he naturally turned toward the temple. Just as he started across the porch of Solomon, the darkness was lifted, and everything seemed to dance before his eyes. He had never experienced an earthquake shock before, but he felt sure that this was one. He braced himself against one of the pillars, how the massive columns quivered, how the hot air throbbed. The darkness had been awful, but this was doubly terrifying. The earth had scarcely topped trembling when an old white-bearded priest ran across the court of the Gentiles. His wrinkled hands, raised high above his head, shook as with palsy. The scream that he uttered seemed to transfix Joel with horror. The veil of the temple is ranked in twain, he cried. The veil of the temple is ranked in twain. Then with a convulsive shudder, he fell forward on his face. Joel's knees shook. The darkness, the earthquake, and now this mighty force that had laid bare the Holy of Holies filled him with an undefined dread. He ran past the prostrate priest into the inner court and saw for himself. There hung the heavy curtain of Babylonian tapestry, in all its glory of hyacinth and scarlet and purple, torn asunder from top to bottom. No earthquake shock could have made that ragged gash. The wrath of God must have come down and laid mighty fingers upon it. He ran out of the temple and towards the house where he had slept the night before. The earthquake seemed to have shaken all Jerusalem into the streets. Strange words were afloat. A question overheard in passing one excited group, an exclamation in another, made him run the faster. At Reuben's shop he found Jesse and Ruth both crying from fright. The attendant who had them in charge told him that his friends had been gone nearly all day. Where? demanded Joel. I do not know exactly. They went out with one of the greatest multitudes that ever passed through the gates of the city. Not only Jews, but Greeks and Romans and Egyptians. You should have seen the camels and the chariots, the chairs and the litters, he exclaimed the man. 
A sudden fear fell upon the boy that this was the day that the one he loved best had remained king, and he had missed it, had missed the greatest opportunity of his life. Was it to follow Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, he demanded eagerly? The man nodded. To crown him, was the next breathless question? No, to crucify him. The unexpected answer was almost a death thrust. Joel stood a moment, dumb with horror. The blood seemed to stand still on his veins. There was a roaring in his ears, and then everything grew black before him. He clutched blindly at the air, then staggered back against the wall. No, 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 he cried, and each word was louder than the last. I will not believe it. You do not speak the truth. He ran madly from the shop, down the street, and through the city gate. Out on the highway he met the returning multitude, most of the men in as great haste as he. Everything he saw seemed to confirm the truth of what he had just heard, but he could not believe it. No, 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 he gasped in a breathless whisper as he ran. No, 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 it cannot be. He is the Christ, the Son of God. They could not be able to do it, no matter how much they hated him. But even as he ran, he saw the hill where the three crosses were. He turned sick and cold, and so weak he could scarcely stand. Still he stumbled resolutely on, but with his face turned away from the sight he dared not look upon, lest seeing should be knowing what he feared. At last he reached the place, and shrinking back as if from an expected blow, he slowly raised his eyes till they rested on the face of the dead body hanging there. The agonized shriek on his lips died half uttered as he fell unconscious at the foot of the cross. A long time after, one of the soldiers happening to notice him turned him over with his foot and prodded him sharply with his spear. It partially aroused him, and in a few moments he sat up. Then he looked up again into the white face above him. But this time the bowed head awed him into a deep calm. The veil of the temple was rent indeed, and through this pierced body there shone out from its holy of holies the Shekinah of God's love for a dying world. It uplifted Joel and drew him and drew him till he seemed to catch a faint glimpse of the Father's face, to feel himself bolded in his boundless pardon, in pity so deep and a love so unfathomed that the lowest sinner could find a share. But while he gazed and gazed into the white face, so glorified in its marble stillness, Joseph of Arimathea stood between him and the cross, giving directions in a low tone for the removal of the body. It seemed to waken Joel out of his trance, and when the bloodstained form was stretched gently on the ground, he forgot his glimpse of heavenly mysteries. He saw no longer the uplifted Christ. He saw instead the tortured body of the man he loved, the friend for whom he would have gladly given his life. Almost blinded by the rush of tears, he groped his way on his knees toward it. A mantle of fine white linen had been laid over the lifeless body, but one hand lay stretched out beside him with a great bloody nail hole through the palm. It was the hand that had healed him, the hand that had fed the hungry multitudes, the hand that had been laid in blessing on the heads of little children waiting by the roadside. With the thought of all it had done for him, with the thought of all it had done for all the countless ones its warm, loving touch had comforted, came the remembrance of the torture it had just suffered. Joel lay down beside it with a heartbroken bow. Men came and lifted the body in its spotless covering. Joel did not look up to see a board away. The lifeless hand still hung down and covered at his side. His eyes fixed on that, Joel followed, longing to press it to his lips with burning kisses, but he dared not so much as touch it with trembling fingers. A sense of his unworthiness forbade. As a silent procession went on, Joel found himself walking beside Abigail. She had pushed the veil aside that she might better see the still form born before them. She had stood nearby through all those hours of suffering. Her wan face and swollen eyes showed how the force of her sympathy and grief had worn upon her. Joel glanced around for Phineas. He was one of those who walked before with the motionless burden, his strong brown hands tenderly supporting the master's pierced feet. His face was as rich as a stone and seemed to Joel to have grown years older since the night before. Another swift rush of tears blinded Joel as he looked at the sad, scrag face and then at what he carried. O oh, friend of Phineas, O oh, feet that often ran to meet him on the grassy hillsides of Nazareth, that walked beside him at his daily toil and led him to a nobler living, 
Thou hast climbed the mountain of Beatitudes. Thou hast walked the wind-stuffed waters of the Galilee. But not of this is he thinking now, and of thy life's unselfish pilgrimage, of the dust and travel stains of the way he bears, of the many steps, taken never for self, always for others, of the cure and the comfort they have daily carried, of the great love that hath made their passing to be a benediction. It seems strange to Joel that in the midst of such overpowering sorrow, trivial little things have claimed attention. Years afterward, he remembered just how the long streaks of yellow sunshine stole under the trees of the garden. He could hear the whir of grasshoppers jumping up in the path ahead of him. He could smell the heavy odor of lilies growing beside an old tomb. The sorrowful little group wound its way to the part of the garden where a new tomb had been hewn out of the rock. Here Joseph of Arimathea motioned them to stop. They led the open bier gently on the ground, and Joel watched them with dry eyes but trembling lips as they noisily prepared the body for its hurried burial. From time to time they wound the bands of white linen powdered with mirror and aloes, they looked up nervously at the sinking sun. The Sabbath eve was almost upon them, and the old slavish fear of the law made them hasten. A low stifled moaning rose from the lips of the woman as the one they had followed so long was lifted up and borne forever out of their sight through the low doorway of the tomb. Strong hands rolled the massive stone in place that barred the narrow opening. Then all was over. There was nothing more that could be done. The desolate mourners sat down on the grass outside the tomb to watch and weep and wait over a dead hope and a lost cause. A deep stillness settled over the garden as they lingered there in the gathering twilight. They grew calm after a while and began to talk in low tones of the awful events of the day just dying. Gradually, Joel learned all that had taken place. As he heard the story of the shame and abuse and torture that had been heaped upon the one he loved better than all the world, his face grew white with horror and indignation. Oh, wasn't there one to stand up for him, he cried with clasped hands and staring eyes. Wasn't there one to speak a word in his defense? Oh, my beloved, he moaned. Out of all the thousands thou didst heal, out of all the multitudes thou didst bless, not one to bear witness. He rocked himself to and fro on his knees, wringing his hands as if the thought brought him unspeakable anguish. Oh, if I had only been there, he moaned. If I could only have stood up beside him and told what he has done for me. Oh, my God, my God, how can I bear it? To think he went to his death without a friend and without a follower, when I loved him so, all alone, not one to speak for him, not one. Groping with tear-blinded eyes toward the tomb, the boy stretched his arms lovingly around the great stone that stopped his entrance. Then suddenly realizing he could never go any closer to the one inside, never see him again. He leaned his head helplessly against the rock and gave way to his feelings of utter loneliness and despair. How long he stood there he did not know. When he looked up again, the woman had gone, and it was nearly dark. Phineas and several other men lingered in the black shadows of the trees, and Joel joined them. Roman guards came presently. A stout cord was stretched across a stone, its ends firmly fastened, and it sealed with the seal of Caesar. A watchfire was kindled nearby, and the Roman sentinels began their steady tramp, tramp as they paced back and forth. High overhead, the stars began to set their countless watchfires in the heavens, and the white full moon of the Passover looked down, and all night long kept its silent vigil over the forsaken tomb of the sleeping Christ. Abigail had found shelter for the night with friends in a tent just outside the city, but Joel and Phineas took their way back to Bethany. Little was said as they trudged along the moonlight. Joel thought only of one thing, his great loss, the love of which he had been bereft. But to Phineas, this death meant much more than the separation from the best of friends. It meant the death of a cause on which he had staked his all. He must go back to Galilee to be the laughingstock of his old neighbors. He who they trusted would have saved Israel had been put to death as a felon, crucified between two thieves. The cause was lost. He is left to face an utter failure. When the moon went down that morning over the hills of Judea, there were many hearts that mourned the man of Nazareth, but not a soul in all the universe believed on him as the Son of God. Hope lay dead in the tomb of Joseph, with the great stone forever walling it in. End of chapter 17
Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Salt Story Classic. Thank you.